Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. So I don't always dive into the specifics of a victim scam on the podcast, mostly because I think it's something that you know you all hear every day. A lot of you hear from victims of consumer targeted scams a lot. And you know about them and, you know, when they hit the headlines, there's unfortunately not anything really new, except when Aaron and I were talking on Tuesday, which if you have not yet listened to my conversation with Aaron West on this last Tuesday's episode, you really missed out. It's one of my favorite conversations I have had in a while. And it's hard to say that because I genuinely enjoy every conversation that I have on Fraudology, but uh, I've been wanting to have her be a guest for a long time and she she did not disappoint. But when Aaron brought up Andy Cohen and uh, what had happened to him and the scam he fell victim to recently, and then what he did after that, I not only knew that we were kindred spirits, but I also thought, well, I should probably dive into that and talk more about it and then talk about why it impressed us so much. So that's going to be the main topic today is I'm going to dive into that scam, what happened, and then what he did about it that was so different and so notable. But first, I'm bringing back a What the Fraud segment. Uh, I haven't had one for a while. I don't want to try to force it and have a What the Fraud segment every week when there just isn't a story for it and try to turn it into something that it's not. But as soon as I read this headline, I knew it had to be a What the Fraud segment. There's just no other way. The title says it all, but then I will share a a few more details. So the headline of this article is NYPD rookie arrested and charged with stealing Arrestee's card number, then brazenly sharing it with his friends. Lunch on me, guys. So yeah, an NYPD rookie, uh, he'd been on the job for about a year, was arrested and charged with stealing an Arrestee's card number. So um, I'll screw down a little bit and share some of the details. So he was... uh, charged with grand larceny, criminal possession of stolen property, petty larceny, official misconduct, attempted identity theft, and unlawful possession of personal identification. I mean, if you're gonna steal someone's identity, you probably shouldn't do it in a police station, but that's just, I don't know, what do I know? So this article says that prosecutors stated that the card owner had been arrested and detained at the 52nd Precinct Station House for three days before this police officer, I don't want to butcher his last name, but he's 24, uh, gained access to the card. During the prisoner's stay, her belongings were secured in police custody, providing him the opportunity to use his cell phone to capture images of her card. Police reports state that the officer sent photos of the credit card and shared them with a group of his friends on a text thread on March 23rd. So this was last year uh, that said lunch on me, guys, later adding you're all welcome. The images clearly showed a woman's credit card number, expiration date and security code. His friends responded. One person named Lemon quipped probably got overdraft fees because they're broke. Uh, The officer chimed in. Try it. 
And then he suggested that they needed to use um, a Bronx zip code and actually her zip code uh, if they were going to order anything online. Another friend replied to the group text about to run it up at Starbucks. When the friend attempted to make the purchase, the card number was declined by a Starbucks barista, according to court records. The young men were persistent and tried to use the card four additional times. Finally, they abandoned their attempt. The fraud attempts occurred within a 12-minute time frame. The card owner, who was in the NYPD station house in jail, realized that someone was using her card. Once she realized that her card had been stolen, she reported the fraud attempt, especially considering she had only entrusted her belongings and her credit card to officers within the station. The NYPD Internal Affairs Bureau was able to trace the crime to this police officer. He was later apprehended early Tuesday, January 2nd. So if this fraud happened in March and he was just getting apprehended for it in January, I'm sure he was doing it for a while. In fact, this next paragraph will kind of confirm that. Uh, They said that uh, officers arrested him after he completed a midnight shift around 11 a.m. So when he got off work, they were waiting for him in the upper parking lot of the 52nd Precinct Station House. He was taking pictures of victims and perps IDs and credit cards and sending them to friends who would then make charges. The New York Daily News reports um, that an insider from the department said that. So when they were arresting him, he was, or when they arrested him up in the parking lot, he was taking pictures of victims and perps IDs and credit cards and sending them to friends. This was... 10 months after the original one happened. So God only knows how many credit cards he was stealing in that time. He pleaded not guilty during his arraignment in Bronx criminal court, but the rookie was suspended from the force without pay following his arrest. So if that doesn't make you say what the fraud, I don't know. It does. It's very brazen. Uh, And, you know, clearly he chose the wrong career path. Um, then again, it makes you wonder how often that happens, especially if, you know, he thought he could get away with it for so long. Now diving into another New Yorker story, uh, Andy Cohen. So Aaron and I talked a little bit about who he was uh, on the episode on Tuesday. And I mean, I think it was probably clear that that wasn't necessarily a planned topic of conversation, but I'm so glad that she brought it up. Uh, (laughs) I don't always talk about, you know, the things I like to watch in my free time, but I as a connoisseur and somebody who really appreciates human behavior, uh, whether it be in fraud investigations or, you know, in fraud strategy, when you're looking at a higher level of human behavior, more on the sociology side. Um, I really enjoy Bravo reality television. I'll say it. Um, and I don't think it should be a guilty pleasure. I enjoy it. My husband has said that he doesn't understand how someone so smart can watch something so dumb, but you know, he's got his stuff too that I try not to judge him for. Um, but I always tell him that that's why, right? It's because I'm smart that I want to watch it. It's a way to turn my brain off and the human behavior fascinates me. And, you know, up until recently, most of them didn't really seem overly produced, which is why I you know really liked Bravo in particular. There's been a couple that I've had to just stop watching lately because it does feel like it's getting a little overproduced, but that's, this is not a Bravo podcast and I will not go into all the details about how I feel about, you know, certain reality uh, TV shows that start with Real Housewives or other shows like that. But Andy Cohen has really built an empire at Bravo. Uh, He started out in news and then he went to Bravo and he is responsible for creating a lot of TV shows that have done really well. Uh, Not all of them 
you know, Real Housewives shows. He's also created Top Chef, uh, which my husband finally agreed to watch a Bravo show during COVID uh, when I got him into Top Chef. So that was great. Project Runway uh, and other shows like that. He also has his own TV show called Watch What Happens Live five nights a week. I also enjoy watching that. <laughs> um, and he has his own reality or uh, his own radio show on Sirius XM. So he's got quite the little uh, empire. I did get to see him uh, in Anderson Cooper live uh, in Seattle several years ago. So that was really fun. Um, they're best friends and have quite a funny friendship. So it was pretty fun. But anyway, in case you were living under a rock, that's who Andy Cohen is. Uh, he's executive producer for several reality shows and kind of has become his own media personality too. And, oh, he also hosts uh, New Year's Eve with Anderson Cooper on CNN every New Year's Eve. But that's not why I'm talking about him. <laughs> a few weeks ago, actually, I was listening to a radio show on his radio station and he was the guest. And they said, you know, we heard that you were a victim of a scam. What happened? And he was kind of uncomfortable and didn't really want to talk about it. And he only shared a couple of pieces of it. So it didn't make that much sense to me at the time. But what I could tell was his bank wasn't going to repay him. And usually when, you know, there are longstanding customers with high bank account balances, if they fall victim to a scam, whether it's authorized push payment or, you know, other types of scams, often the bank will reimburse them. And so that's, you know, why we don't usually hear from, oh, that's one of the reasons why we don't usually hear from people with a platform about it. I think the other reason is there's just so much shame associated with being a victim of a financial scam. This is what these people do for a living. They're really, really good at it. I don't think that there should be shame. I think that, you know, it's important that people talk about it because if you don't, or if people don't know what to look for, or, you know, what, made something suspicious in hindsight, well, then it's just going to keep perpetrating. And as we know, whether it's pig butchering or other types of scams, consumers are in the US especially, but also the UK and parts of the EU and other Western countries are falling victim to scams and being really perpetrated for scams over the last few years. And I don't see that stopping anytime soon. You know, they've Financial fraud has tried to go towards e-commerce companies and fintechs and banks, and they still are. But for the most part, we've been able to protect ourselves. And so in some cases, they've gone to the path of least resistance, which is often consumers. They don't have the technology that we have. They don't have the education that we have, and they're not all in one entity. So now that you know that I am a big Andy Cohen fan, um, we can set that aside and now that you know who he is, set that aside and talk about the scam uh, that he was a victim of uh, a few weeks ago. So he was the victim of an imposter scam. We often classify those. I mean, fraudsters don't classify their scams, but we do. And I think, you know, for good reason to be able to tell them apart from, you know, one scam or another. But according to, I think it's the IC3.gov, there were 600,000 cases reported last year and classified as imposter scams with $2 billion in losses. Again, I mean, pig butchering at 3 million, imposter scams at 2 billion. I, I know that that's a lot of money, but just knowing how much is out there and how many attempts even I get a day, I just think that's grossly underreported. And, you know, Aaron talked about that, right? If not everyone knows that they need to report it to the IC3.gov. 
or they don't have you know realistic expectations about what that means. So if they report it to their local law enforcement and local law enforcement doesn't know what to do or doesn't even know to tell them to report it to IC3.gov, then it's not reported. And those are of the people who are willing to say, hey, I was a victim of a scam. There's so much shame in this that it's a lot more than one in 10 that report this or a lot less than one in 10. I I think AARP said one in 40. Um, so we just have to be realistic when looking at these numbers. It's important for us to be able to know how much you know in losses it is. So governments and other entities can know how much to care about it, but it needs to be accurate too. So here's what happened to Andy in the series of events. So he lost his bank card and reported it stolen or lost or stolen. The next day, and it's hard to know if this is a coincidence or not. I actually don't think it is, but more on that in a minute. Uh, he got an email from his bank's fraud department in quotation marks. He didn't look at, you know, the email and who it was from, if it was from his bank or, you know, another. Now, granted, they use, you know, dynamic alphabets and things like that to make it look very close, but sometimes it's not even close to that, right? Sometimes it's a Gmail address and they're saying it's coming from a very large bank, but didn't look at that, was in a hurry. Um, he clicked the link in the email and started to fill it out. And then it asked, um, so then it asked him to log into his bank account. So it had a website that looked like his bank account. So he gave his credentials, but then the bank asked for his Apple ID and he knew that that was weird and suspicious. His bank had never asked him for his Apple ID. So he stopped and exited right away. And he said, I realized that that was a scam, exited it right away, went about my life. The next day he received a text from his bank saying someone's trying to use your card at, you know, X merchant. Is this you? And he replied, no. Almost immediately, his phone rang. The caller ID was his bank. You know, it said that it was his bank on the caller ID. They said that they were the fraud department and uh, they started going through past charges on his bank account to verify if he made the charges. So, you know, in theory, because he logged into his bank, his online banking the day before, on this fake website, they were able to log into his bank account and say, did you make a purchase here? And he was like, oh yeah, yep, that was me. Did you make the purchase here? Yep, yep, that was me. Like going through and like building trust, right? Because how else would they know where he charged his card and for how much unless they were his bank? As they were going through it, one of the things he mentioned was, you know, he was talking to her and he said, yeah, I got a scam email yesterday that said that had me log into my account and everything, but then it asked for my Apple ID and the fraudster who was posing as the fraud department for his bank said, oh, we will never ask you for your Apple ID. So that was definitely fraud, you know, just gaining trust. So then she said, we're going to send you some codes via text. We let us know we need you to let us know that you got them to verify your phone number and all of that. Well, at the time they were logging into his bank account and he was getting OTP or actually they were initiating wire transfers at the time. And there was a one-time passcode being sent to him from his bank. And he was relaying that to the fraudster who was pretending to be the fraud department of his bank. Uh, this happened three times. So he gave them the one-time passwords. They were able to enter them in and get the wires approved. He said he was on the phone with them for about an hour and gaining trust. And he said that she was really nice and very confident and just walked him through what she needed him to do. She didn't necessarily explain 
everything, but she, you know, for the one-time password, she just say, we just need to verify that this is your phone number and that this is your account. So we're going to send you a few test texts. Clearly they already had his phone number, but you know, when you're in the moment, you're not thinking about it. So then this is where it gets a little weird and I hadn't heard this variation before, but it makes sense. Uh, and it's a smart variation that I think we should all know about. So after doing the uh, one-time passwords, they had him go into his phone settings and just told him exactly how to do things. They knew he had an iPhone. I think he told them and they just said, okay, go here, go here, go into your settings, do this, do this, do this. They didn't exactly explain it, but he saw something flash on his screen for just a couple seconds. And thankfully he took a screenshot of it. And it was basically a confirmation that he was enabling call forwarding and SMS call forwarding. So he was enabling all phone calls and all text messages to go to a different number. So when she said, enter in this number, you know, and it was doing math, a 10 digit number. Um, in the US, well, that was the phone number to forward it to. But he didn't know what he was doing. He was just doing what his bank told him to do. Um, he mentioned to the scammer or to the, you know, the fraudster posing as the fraud department, hey, it says that I just enabled call forwarding. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's what it's supposed to say. Let's just keep moving on. Um, just ignore it. So when the bank called him to verify the wires, because they were large amounts and he was wiring them to you know, presumably outside of the U.S. to accounts he'd never done wires to before. His bank called him. The actual fraud department called him. Well, who answered but the fraudsters to say, yep, absolutely, I approve that wire. Um, he said that he felt weird about it after that phone call, but that he called his bank and left a couple messages, but they never called him back. Well, they probably tried, but they were calling back the call forwarding number. He didn't really think about the fact that he didn't have any phone calls or text messages, which... I mean, I would assume that if Andy Cohen stopped getting text messages, that would be weird, but I don't know. You know, who knows? Maybe it was just a quiet night, didn't put anything together. So one of the reasons why I think that it's smart but scary that they um, had him initiate call forwarding is because, you know, they probably didn't want to do a SIM swap. You know, Aaron and I talked about SIM swaps on Tuesday. I've talked about them in past episodes. The thing is, there's technology out there, and a lot of you in the FI world know this, uh, that can tell a bank or a company who uses this technology, when the last time the a specific phone number had been ported, when the last time was that a phone number had been moved from one phone provider to the other, showing the likelihood of a SIM swap. For instance, if there's a large wire and you want to know if this is fraud or not, and you run that phone number through specific solution providers, and you're told the last time they ported over their phone to another provider was in the last 24 hours, well, that's going to tell you that it's probably a lot more likely to be fraud than the fact that they just randomly decided to change their cell phone provider right before they did a giant you know, a large wire. So because there's those indicators now, I think that that's a big reason why they worked with him to enable call forwarding. Uh, it just goes to show it's a never ending cat and mouse game. And whenever we think we're getting in the upper hand, they're going to figure out a way around it. So, uh, you know, this is something that we mentioned in the 2024 fraud predictions for scams that they were going to get more sophisticated. This was one. And then there was another one similar to it that I had heard of uh, that contributed to that being in the article because we, I just, as soon as I learned that they were walking people through how to enable call forwarding on their phone and not really telling them that's what was happening, I went, oh, well, that's a good way to get around SIM swap detection. 
So although Andy Cohen has gone on the Today Show, he has spoken on you know a handful of radio shows and his own show about this scam. He hasn't wanted to disclose how much was stolen from him. I don't blame him, but he did get close on one uh, program I heard him on where he did say it was six figures um, and that it was a sizable amount. You know, it was that's a lot of money, um, even for someone who's in entertainment and who probably makes millions. That's still sizable that they didn't, you know, they're not even getting a tax deduction on that, right? They can't say that they donated it to charity. That's just a loss. I know I've been promising to tell you more about SPEC and why I invited them to sponsor episodes of Fraudology. And there's actually so many things that I want to tell you and will tell you over the next several weeks. But the first thing I wanted to make sure that you hear about is their Trust Cloud. Spec's Trust Cloud protects the integrity of the digital user while simplifying the risk process. It allows you to discover insights across the entire digital user experience. It allows you to catch attacks early. With access to full visibility, you can scan visitor behavior across their entire journey to catch the risk patterns that traditional fraud check APIs miss. Visualize the flow of attacks, identifying areas to catch them early, and leaving bad actors with nowhere to hide. It also allows you to start each journey with instant trust. You can boost platform integrity by instantly welcoming return customers to their personal account experience, while your trust platform invisibly screens for signs of compromise and abuse. It also allows you to remove friction for good customers and increase conversions. By using a single source of truth, you can detect evolving fraud attacks and identify conversion drop-offs and optimize your payment strategy. The bottom line is when you're able to to see every customer's behavior from the moment that they enter your website until the time of checkout or when they open up a new account, you can identify that before the fake account is made, before the transaction is even made and now you've got a fraud transaction in your platform. It's honestly game-changing and I'm really excited for more people to learn about it. So to learn more about SPEC and this new technology and especially their spec trust cloud go to www.specprotected.com he went on to say in some of his interviews that he considers himself savvy you know he usually checks the email he you know doesn't answer wrong number texts he doesn't you know so he thinks he knows you know all the scams which i think a lot of us do um but he fell victim the woman from his fraud department or you know the fake fraud department gained his trust throughout the call and it made me think of the two episodes i've had robert kerbeck on the podcast you know he's a former uh corporate spy and he you know talks about social engineering and he trains teams on how to identify social engineering calls or at least how to not become a victim and one of those ways that he talked about in the first time he came was just take a minute just slow down right and say i need you know i need to step away or i need to put you on hold walk away and allow for some critical thinking does this make sense you know this overall scam kind of used a combination of different scams Oftentimes, these type of scams will happen to people whose card was stolen and declined. So, you know, it's a little surprising that it was the next day, but not necessarily. I mean, if they had his name and they did a Google search, they probably realized he was a high net worth individual and, and he got to the top of the list. But I've mentioned this before, too, that, you know, the one time that my card was stolen, I received a call from my bank's fraud department on the caller ID telling me that, you know, they were calling about those stolen charges 
And then they tried to get me to verify my account numbers and tell them what the account numbers were so that they could then presumably do ACH fraud, right? If they knew my actual bank account number, they could do more. So it's so easy to get a list of credit card numbers that have been declined. And all you have to do is look up the first six digits of the card and you know who their bank is and you can impersonate their bank. You know, they first tried with email. It could have been a different organized crime group, but because this person on the phone had access to his bank account and knew the previous charges, my guess is that this was the same group. When they call as the fraud department, they gain trust. Who knew that we'd be so cool, right? Like, who knew so many people would want to impersonate us? But I think Frank said it on uh, the podcast when he and Marianne came on a couple weeks ago that the fraud department is now the most impersonated group around by scammers because they know that, you know, typically we gain trust. I think it's kind of funny because when I used to call as a member of the fraud department 10 or 15 years ago, people didn't even know what that was. Like, oh, this company has a fraud department? What kind of fraud? What are you talking about? Now, fraud and scams are so popular that the everyday consumer knows who, who the fraud department is and they, you know, instantly give them trust. So I think it's really important to know that it's not always the case. They'll call and say that that's who they are, but they aren't. But it's also important for you as fraud fighters to know that your departments are most likely being impersonated. Uh, there's someone on uh, LinkedIn who is probably the most impersonated person uh, in the world. And he is uh, the head of fraud for a large bank. And he has it all over his LinkedIn. And if you know he called anyone, um, you know, he's hoping somebody Googles him and looks him up. And the first thing on his LinkedIn says, if I called you, it wasn't me. It was fraud. Uh, I really want to have him as a guest on the podcast. (laughs) The sad thing is I forgot to write his name down. So if anyone knows who I'm talking about, feel free to let me know. Um, I think Frank McKenna knows also. But, you know, sometimes they will impersonate specific people on the fraud team so that if somebody's looking it up, they can see that, you know, on LinkedIn, they really work there. But most of the time, it's just generally the fraud department. They obviously called with a sense of urgency. Time was of the essence. It was, oh my gosh, somebody's using your card. We need to make sure that we can shut this down right away. We need to help you. And then, you know, obviously the social engineering piece. So it was all those pieces put together. Um, And like I said, fraudsters don't go, okay, I'm going to do a little bit of social engineering and I'm going to do a little bit of an imposter scam. I'm going to you know, do uh, email first, a phishing scam first, and then I'm going to do this and that. No, they just put together their, their scam and their scheme. Uh, but I think it's important to know, like, if they're Frankensteining a fraud scheme or scam, to know some of those variations. Uh, the person who called him had confidence. She didn't necessarily explain why he was pressing the buttons. But by then, he, she had his complete confidence and trust. There was no time for critical thinking because she was just on to the next thing, on to the next thing. She even said, oh, yeah, we would never ask for your Apple ID. That obviously was a scam. Showing that, you know, that was a scam, but I'm not. It's just, it, I'm sure none of this surprises you guys. It doesn't surprise me either, but it still gets me frustrated because, you know, strong sense of justice and all. The specifics of the scam are always going to change, right? Like, I'll never forget when my grandmother said that the Social Security Administration in the US had called her and told her this big elaborate story about how someone who was in the country uh, illegally was using her social security number and they had committed a really bad crime and just all these things. And they asked to verify her social security number and she gave it to them. And I was like, why did you do that? Like, I you know thought that I had 
taught her not to. And she said, well, you said that the IRS would never call, but you never said that the Social Security Administration wouldn't call. It's like, okay, well, it's not about the specifics. It's about having those core tenants of things that you just don't do because any scam is going to rely on them. It's kind of like when I um, did a solo episode, I believe back in December uh, with six tips to not fall victim to the scam. And two of those would have helped in this scenario had Andy Cohen listened to me um, <laughs> or, or had any idea who I was or listened to my podcast. One of them was don't click any links in emails. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. Um, and he recognized that that was, you know, he was, he was in a hurry and he didn't even look at, you know, the, it doesn't matter even if the email looks legit, just don't click on a link in an email. I don't even click on links and emails for marketing ads. I just go out to the website. If I get a marketing ad from a company, you know, for something that I want to look at further, I'll go out to their website and look for it. It's always there. Or I'll get the promo code from the email and then go out to the web and enter it if I make a purchase. And then the second tip that would have worked here is don't give any information or do anything asked by someone that called you. So, you know, don't give your account number, don't give anything offer to call them back or insist that you're going to call them back. And if they say they don't have an internal phone number, if they say that you can't call them back, it's a pretty good sign that they're a scam. However, like on the flip side of that, if you work for a financial institution, make sure that you have processes in place now more than ever for receiving calls inbound. And when at all possible, make sure that uh, customer service employees are able to transfer those calls because, you know, think about it, right? Andy Cohen called his bank twice. They tried to call him back, but he wasn't getting the phone calls. So that's just, you know, one way. The only way that he knew that this was a scam is he ended up walking into his bank the next day or into a branch of his bank and saying, what's going on? You know, I think I had fraud on my account, but you guys never called me back. And at that point, it was too late. The wires had already been authorized. Um, and like I said before, you know, this is not a scam or a scheme that banks have liability on. And so it is on the consumer. I was a little surprised that someone of his high net worth, you know, wasn't covered for it. But selfishly, because he has been so vocal about this and has gotten the word out to so many people, I guess I'm kind of glad that they didn't. Because if they would have reimbursed him, he just would have been like, okay, well, I'm made whole. I'm good. Now that he realizes, oh, it doesn't actually cover these kind of things, then he's making sure that nobody else falls for it. And that is just, I can't say enough good things about that because it's rare. It's rare for anyone to come out as a victim of a scam and say, this happened to me. Don't let it happen to you. As Aaron and I said, we're now even bigger fans of Andy Cohen uh, because he didn't let Shane keep him quiet. He shared his story and he used his platform to be able to get on the Today Show, to be able to you know, be in several articles. I think he was on E! News and some other platforms too. Um, he used it to educate consumers and to say, hey, don't be like me. Here's what you can do. And it was clear that he, uh, when I watched his clip from the Today Show, it was clear that he had talked to someone uh, with some fraud prevention knowledge, whether it was at his bank or somewhere else, because he was giving tips, you know, similar tips to what I just gave. We need more of this. This is something that I've had this conversation with several fraud fighters recently, where because consumers are dispersed everywhere and there isn't like one main organization, I mean, thank goodness for the AARP, but they speak to a specific audience and they can't know everything about everything. 
and get word out fast enough. And after a while, I'm sure people's eyes glaze over and they just think, okay, yeah, 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 it's a scam or whatever. But there's not an entity like there is for banks or like there is for e-commerce companies who have financial liability. There isn't an entity that's educating them on a regular basis. In our society, in this day and age, having someone with some clout, someone with a platform saying, hey, this can happen and don't let it happen to you. And here are the three things you can do to not let it happen to you is going to have just a huge impact. And that's something that I wish we had more of. And there's several fraud fighters that have said the same thing. If only we could get a spokesperson. Well, who would pay for it, right? Like, would ever consumer donate a dollar? No. Uh, you know, so it's challenging for the, from that regard. But as scammers and fraudsters continue to innovate and continue to adapt to anything that we put in their place. I mean, the, what they're doing to get around SIM swapping is a perfect example. The best tool we have is education and collaboration. And those are two tools, but education for consumer scams and then collaborating with you know, other financial institutions or other e-commerce companies to say, hey, are you guys seeing this? Oh yeah, we are too. Here's what we're advising or here's what we're doing about it. There's no replacement for that. And especially with all different types and you know modifications to scams, it can't just be us talking about these. Um, if Tuesday's episode taught us anything, we should be at DEF CON 1. We should be screaming it from the rooftops at this point. We should be telling the people who, you know, cut our hair or walk our dog about this. I, I'm guilty of not doing that, but it's something that, you know, if you can get it at a little bit of a bigger scale, it's even better. So how can you as a fraud fighter help to get the word out? Well, here's just a couple ideas I had. One is if you have famous friends, talk to them about you know, tweeting or Xing or whatever we're calling it these days about scams, right? Like, hey, did you know it's important to use a different password for all of your accounts so that your accounts don't get hacked? Things like that. I know that that's a stretch, but hey, you never know. I know a few of you have some pretty famous friends, so I'm throwing it out there. Um, you can suggest local news stories to your local news. Uh, there are a lot of vulnerable people that watch local news and, you know, that's a good place to start. Speak at senior citizen events locally. Um, there's probably other things too. I know some banks and some credit unions have been doing um, fraud week celebrations or have been providing educational content for their members or for their customers. Do what you can. I mean, I just, it probably sounds cheesy, but the more and more I hear about people falling victim for these types of scams, these authorized push payment scams or wire scams or anything like that, the more I feel like we just need to get the word out more. That's really the only thing that's going to stop it. Because if people know, oh, my bank will never ask for that, or my bank will totally be okay if I call them back. In fact, they would prefer for me to call them back than to talk to an imposter. Well, that's how you start to move the needle on these things. And those are preventative measures that really don't have very good countermeasures from the fraud side. Now they can say, you know, yeah, I know that there's a scam going around about this, but this isn't that. Um, but still, that's it's rare, right? We need to be able to have some level of education and people knowing about it. So I applaud Andy Cohen for that. Um, it's horrible that it happened to him, but I'm grateful that he has used his platform to educate his audience. 
And hopefully one day we can get, you know, spokespeople for this cause, even if they hadn't been scammed themselves. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed this and I look forward to speaking with you more next week. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.